It is great to be with you this weekend. Uh, my wife Jenny and I have greatly enjoyed the conference and your hospitality and worshiping with you this morning. Uh, I've known Pastor Croft for a number of years now and greatly uh, respect his ministry. And uh, I know that this church is off to a wonderful start, your church plant here. We pray for you all regularly. And uh, we're really excited to see a church like this beginning in the Austin area. And uh, so certainly uh, we want to see God build something uh, truly great, truly wonderful here. I'm going to talk this morning in the sermon about how Christ builds his church. I needed to show you that I can't talk about something other than sex. Okay, if you're here for the conference this weekend, so I have to show I've got, I can't talk about something else. Uh, but uh, it is great to be with you this weekend. Let me pray for us and we'll begin. Father, we do ask for your blessings now upon the preaching of your word. Father, we know that it is a great and glorious thing when your people come together and ascend into your heavenly sanctuary to receive your gifts to receive wisdom from your word, to feast together at your table, to hear the forgiveness of sins proclaimed in Christ's name. Father, these are all glorious things. We know it's glorious too when your people return praise and thanksgiving to you. And that's what we're gathered here today to do, to receive your gifts and to give you praise and thanks in turn. Father, speak to us now. Speak to us words of comfort in the midst of a world that is filled with darkness and with anxiety. Speak words of hope and encouragement. Strengthen us this day through your word. This we ask in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. So we're looking this morning at the gospel lesson that was uh, read to us a few moments ago from Matthew chapter 16. This passage in Matthew 16 is one of the greatest, one of the most important, and I would say one of the most fascinating passages in the entire scripture. And we'll jump right into it. In verse 13, we see Jesus and his disciples coming into the region of Caesarea Philippi. And of course, anytime the Bible gives us geographic information, this is not uh, useless information. These are important details that are really integral to the scene, to what happens. Uh, we know historically, Herod Philip had been the ruler in this region. He had rebuilt the city there. This is in northern Israel. After the rebuilding of the city, he named it after Caesar and after himself. You know, politicians, they, they never do anything arrogant, right? <laughs> How about naming a city after yourself? That's what uh, he did. So he named the city after Caesar and after himself. So the name is a combination of a Gentile ruler, Caesar, with a Jewish ruler, Philip. And uh, it's very interesting. This was a place that was filled with emperor worship. It was a place filled with pagan idolatry. Mount Bashan is in this region. And in Psalm 68, Bashan is described as a place haunted by demons. It's also described as a place that God wants to reclaim for himself. It will be a place where God defeats his enemies, but it's a place haunted by demons. What's interesting for our purposes is that the Jews called the place at the base of Mount Bashan the gate of hell because they saw this as a place where demons are worshiped. The area was widely known for its worship of the Greek god Pan and for the degenerate culture that went with it, with the worship of this Greek god Pan. And so the whole scene is set, this whole scene in Matthew 16 is set at a place of demon worship and emperor worship, a place known as the gate of hell. 
Uh, further, we know that there were many rock outcroppings in this area around the mountains of Caesarea Philippi, and carved into many of those rocks were images of various pagan gods. The pagan worldview, the pagan religion was represented in these carvings into those rocks. So Jesus has no doubt deliberately taken his disciples to a place called the gate of hell where pagan gods are carved into rock. And of course, gates and rock will figure very prominently in this passage. Now, when they get to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks them a question. And of course, this is the most important question that can ever be asked. It is a question about the identity of Jesus. He asks first, really a, a two-part thing, he asks first, who do the crowds say that the Son of Man is? Now, you might think Jesus is kind of giving away the answer in the question by identifying himself as the Son of Man in the way he asked the question, who do the crowd say that I, the Son of Man, am? And that's true. Uh, Son of Man is at least a partial answer to the question of Jesus' identity. Son of Man means that Jesus is the new Adam. He is the one who has come to fulfill Daniel's vision in Daniel chapter 7, the new Adam who will tame the beasts, not just the animals of the field, but the beastly nations. He's the one who will be reigning over the earth, ultimately. He's the new Adam, the one God will appoint to rule over the earth uh, in wisdom, to have dominion over the earth. But the disciples respond to this question by um, telling Jesus the various theories that people have about Jesus' identity. Perhaps he's John or Elijah or Jeremiah risen from the dead. And of course, all of these answers have a grain of truth in them because all of these various persons, these various men, John, Elijah, Jeremiah, they all pointed to Jesus in various ways. They were all types and, and, and patterns of Jesus, types and patterns that Jesus would come to fulfill. But none of those identities can fully capture who Jesus is. And this becomes clear because Jesus goes on to ask his disciples, who do you say that I am? You've been with, with me much more than the crowds have been. You've heard much more of my teaching. You've seen more of my works. Who do you say that I am? And Peter steps forward and answers the question on behalf of the 12. We'll see throughout this passage, Peter acts as a representative of the 12. So he steps forward to answer the question. He says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. That is to say, you are the promised king who will inaugurate God's kingdom. I don't think Peter understood the, the full meaning of his own words, but he is exactly right. Jesus is the Christ, meaning he is the anointed one, the one who has been anointed with God's spirit. He is the promised king. He is the son of David. God promised to sin. And he is also the son of the living God, which means he is fully divine. I don't think Peter fully understood the implications of everything he was saying here, but his answer is exactly right. And so Jesus affirms Peter's answer. He says, flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. The Father reveals the Son to whom he chooses. This is the whole essence of our salvation. The Father opens our eyes to see the Son for who he is. This is God's grace. This is God's sovereign grace working salvation. Knowing Jesus, knowing his identity is a gift. Knowing the Son is a gift the Father gives to us, of course, we could say through the work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what Jesus is saying the Father has done for Peter. 
Peter's eyes have been opened to at least see a glimpse of who Jesus is and to make this confession. We could say Christ is a Calvinist. He affirms here the sovereignty of God in salvation. Peter didn't figure this out on his own. Uh, it wasn't somebody else. It wasn't some other flesh and blood that figured this out and gave Peter the answer. This was given to Peter by the Father. And so then Jesus continues because Peter has made this confession, Jesus continues, I say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is truly one of the most important, and I would say controversial, declarations in all of Scripture. It reveals to us God's purposes for his people and for history. It reveals to us God's purpose for the church and the power that God has given to his church. Now, there are three crucial terms here in what Jesus says, and we need to look at each one of these. The three crucial terms are rock, keys, and gates. So consider first rock. Peter is called the rock. Jesus calls Peter the rock, and of course it's a pun on his name. The Greek word for rock is Petra, which of course sounds very much like the name Peter. It's as if Jesus says to Peter, you are the rock, and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus says he will build his church on Peter as the confessing apostle. Now, contrary to Roman Catholic claims, this is not unique to Peter. Peter is singled out here because he is the foremost apostle. He's the spokesman, the representative of the apostles. He's a sort of first among equals. The other apostles are his peers. He's their representative. He's their spokesperson. But it's interesting, Ephesians 2.20, which we read this morning, uh, there the apostle Paul says the church is being built on the foundation of the prophet's and apostles, so all of the prophets and all of the apostles, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Peter, yes, he is one of the foundation stones on which the church is being built, but not the only one. All of the apostles together are part of this rock-solid foundation on which the church is being built with Christ himself as the chief cornerstone. The church, we could say, has an apostolic foundation, not just a Petrine foundation, but an apostolic foundation. The apostles, think about their unique historical role in history. There are no successors to the apostles, strictly speaking. In fact, the apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 15, says he is the last of the apostles. And besides this illustration that Paul uses in Ephesians 2 of the apostles laying the foundation, that's something you do once and for all, and then you build on top of it. That, that's how the metaphor, that's how the imagery works. The church has an apostolic foundation. The apostles laid that foundation. And how did they lay that foundation? Well, through their writings, the inspired scriptures of the New Testament, and of course, through the churches they planted. This is how the apostles laid the foundation, through the writing of the New Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and through the churches that they planted uh, throughout uh, the uh, Roman world, uh, the, the, the Oikemene, as it's called, the Roman uh, Empire in those days, in that period from roughly 30 to 70 AD, what we call the apostolic era. That's when all of this took place. That's when the apostles laid the foundation. We could say the church of today is still building on this foundation. We just confessed in the creed, we just acknowledged in the creed that there is one holy Catholic and apostolic church. 
We acknowledge that we're continuing to build the apostolic church today. We're continuing to build the church on their foundation. We're continuing to build the church according to their blueprint. The blueprint the apostles gave to us. We're building on that foundation. So that's Peter. That's the rock. What about the keys? Jesus gives the keys of the kingdom to Peter. But again, uh, this is representative and it describes the kind of ministry that belongs to all church officers, that belongs to pastors and elders in the church. Elsewhere, we find all of the apostles have been given the keys. So again, Peter's given the keys as a representative of the 12, but we can look elsewhere and we can see that the rest of the apostles have these same powers that Peter has. There's nothing really unique about Peter. Uh, In John chapter 20, John's gospel chapter 20, after Jesus' resurrection, when he appears to his apostles, he says to all of them, if you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. That's describing the power of the keys, just like what you have here in Matthew chapter 16. He's saying to his apostles, you will have a ministry of proclaiming forgiveness. And those who believe your words, when you proclaim forgiveness, when you proclaim the gospel, they will be loosed from their sins. And those who reject your words, those who who do not believe your words, they will be bound in their sins. This will be the power of your ministry. Through your proclamation of the gospel, people will be loosed or bound. Uh, In another passage, actually a couple of chapters after this one in Matthew 16, uh, go over to Matthew chapter 18, we find that the keys belong to the whole church and are exercised by elders on behalf of the church. Jesus in Matthew 18 describes what we would call a church discipline process, what the process of church discipline looks like, how it's supposed to work in the church. When there is sin in the church, how is it dealt with? When there's uh, especially uh, heinous sin in the church, how is it to be dealt with? And this is what Jesus says of church officers there in Matthew 18 as he comes to the end of, of describing the church discipline process. He says, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. Again, it sounds just like what he says to Peter in Matthew 16. Now he's saying it of the whole church and especially the elders and pastors who will exercise the power of these keys on behalf of the whole congregation. See, it's really clear. Jesus has delegated authority to his church, and particularly to officers he raises up in the church to carry on this kind of ministry. Now, we would say that this authority that Jesus is giving to his church, uh, the, the terms that we use to describe this authority, we say it is ministerial and declarative. It is not absolute, it is not self-originating, it is not infallible. Jesus is always the final judge, but the church does have a very real, albeit delegated, authority. It's a provisional authority, not the final authority, but it is a real authority. And so when the church absolves sin, such as we did in our worship service this morning, we got down on our knees, we confessed our sins, your pastor stood up and proclaimed God's forgiveness. And he told you it's not what you think or what you feel, it's what the Word of God says. And that is exactly right. And the Word of God declares to all believers, your sins are forgiven. That is the church loosing you from your sins. And when you're loosed from your sins on earth, you can know that is ratified in heaven. See, when the church absolves sins, such as we did in the worship service today, or when the church binds sins, binds someone in their sins, such as in the case of an excommunication, those actions really matter. 
There is real power and authority in those actions. So long as those actions are faithful applications of Scripture, they count. What the church does, God does. What the officers of the church say, God says. When they declare your sins are forgiven, God ratifies that. When they declare someone excommunicated, again, if it's a faithful application of Scripture, God ratifies that in heaven. What the church does, God does. What's done on earth is done in heaven. You've got to qualify that, but it's real. It's true. And of course, you need to understand, all of this is for your good. It is for your comfort. This is how our old friend John Calvin put it, describing the church's ministry of loosing sins in the Declaration of Absolution. Uh, this is how Calvin describes the absolution uh, what it means to have your sins absolved in this declaration of absolution in the liturgy uh, to believers who confess their sins. Uh, Calvin says this, Christ gives elders the keys so that, quote, the grace of the gospel may be publicly and privately sealed in the hearts of believers. Calvin says we should seek God's forgiveness where God has placed it, that is, on the lips of your pastor. God has appointed your pastor for this reason so he can be God's spokesman. So you can, when you hear your pastor say, this is how Calvin puts it, when you hear your pastor declare your sins are forgiven, you ought to hear that as if God himself is speaking from heaven to tell you that your sins have been forgiven because your pastor is speaking for God and God wants to assure us through him that what Christ has accomplished belongs to us. That's what it's all about. So that is the binding and loosing. That is the keys. Well, what about the gates? What about the gates, the gates of hell? Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail against his church. The gates of hell will not stand against his church. Jesus is describing a great battle that's going to take place between the church he is building and hell or Hades. The church that he is building as it stands squarely on the foundation of the apostles and their teaching, as it is equipped with the keys, that is, the word of God, to bind and loose, that church is at war with hell. And Jesus is saying, in that battle, the gates of hell will not stand. The church goes to war with Satan's kingdom. Satan's kingdom described here as Hades or hell. And what's going to happen in this battle? Well, Jesus tells us here. And this is so important to understand because, you know, in our day, the church has gotten so used to losing, we've started to think like losers. We've started to think that the whole calling of the church, that what does it mean to be a Christian? It means to be a doormat for Jesus, to get stepped on for Jesus. And that's what it means to be a Christian. We're supposed to lose. We're destined to lose. If you ask the typical Christian today, is the world getting better or worse? He's going to say worse. Never mind that 2,000 years ago, we started with 120 Christians or so on the day of Pentecost that then immediately jumped into the thousands. Started with just, just over 100 Christians 2,000 years ago, and now we have millions upon millions. Never mind that. No, the, the typical modern Christian is going to tell you things are getting worse and worse. Things are getting worse and worse for the church. And then the modern-day Christian will go on to tell you it is good that things are getting bad because that means Jesus is coming back soon. That is utterly preposterous. 
That's just completely without foundation in the Scripture. There's not a single passage of Scripture that teaches anything like that, and yet it is the operating assumption of so many Christians in our day, at least so many American Christians. Matthew 16 is one of many, many, many texts that refutes that view, that things are getting worse, and it's good they're getting worse, because that means Jesus is coming back soon. You know, you've heard the saying, hope is not a strategy. Uh, I don't necessarily buy that, because if your hope is in Christ, that sounds like a pretty good strategy. But you've heard that saying, hope is not a strategy. Well, guess what? Pessimism is not a strategy either. And what Jesus gives us here in this passage is a strategy, a strategy that is hopeful and that is powerful. And I would say here, Jesus forbids pessimism. Jesus forbids pessimism about his church and about his kingdom. Perhaps not in the short run. I'm I'm not saying you have to ignore certain trends and whatnot that are going on all around us. But Jesus forbids long-term pessimism about his church. Now, now think about the way Jesus describes this here. You have gates in this passage. The gates in this passage belong to hell. And gates, of course, are defensive weapons. And Jesus says that these gates will not stand or will not prevail. That is, the gates are going to be attacked, and the gates will not prevail against that attack. The gates are going to be attacked, and the gates will not stand. That's the imagery. What is Jesus describing here? He's saying that his church is going to put hell on the run. He's saying that his church, as his church marches forward with the keys in hand, equipped with the keys, equipped with the gospel, The church is going to put the devil on the run. Not even the gates of hell can stand against the victorious march of the church. The church is not playing defense here. The church is on offense. The church is a marching army, a rolling fortress, an advancing, conquering people. And the gates of hell, the gates of death, that is to say the forces of darkness, cannot stop the advancing mission of the church. Not even the gates of hell can stand in the way of the church's march to victory. The church is Jesus' plan A for conquest, for global conquest, and there is no plan B. The church will not retreat or surrender. The church will advance and keep on advancing until the mission is complete. Jesus is describing here, really you could say, the whole trajectory of history. Jesus is describing what his church will accomplish in history. Over the centuries, over the millennia, Jesus is promising victory to his church. Not just victory at the very end when he comes back in glory, but a victory that is won across the centuries in history. The church will win the great battle of history. And this is because... The church is not merely a human organization. You know, some people think of the church as kind of like a fan club for Jesus kind of thing, and they can think of the church in purely human terms. It's a human organization. It's a bunch of people who believe the same things, who come together, and you know, just like you have other associations and, and, and voluntary get-togethers of people for various purposes, so you have the church. No. That's not what the church is. It is not some kind of human club or merely human organization. Jesus says here, I will build my church. The church is Jesus' project. 
It's his project, it's his doing, it's his work, it's his mission. And the church will succeed because of Jesus. It's all by his grace, by his mercy, it's by his strength and by his power, it's by his bloodshed and his spirit poured out. That is the church's guarantee of victory. That is why Christians can be confident. It's not because of flesh and blood. No more than Peter came to know who Jesus was by flesh and blood. It is the power of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus. Now, this doesn't mean that church history is going to be a straight upward climb. Uh, Even though the church wins the war, she may lose some battles along the way, uh, almost always because of her own unfaithfulness. G.K. Chesterton once said, reflecting on the ups and downs of church history uh, and and recounting different times when it looked like the church was overrun by uh, heresy or, 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 or something else that would drag the church away from the truth and from her mission. Chesterton said, five times the church has gone to the dogs, but on each occasion it was the dogs that died. And he is exactly right. Now, I have no doubt if Chesterton were still alive today, he'd say, well, maybe the church has gone to the dogs for a sixth time. (laughs) Okay, maybe so. But you know what? It's going to be the dog that dies again, and the church is going to keep marching onward to victory. You can be assured, even when it looks like the church is down and out, the church will rise again. The church never stays down for long, and she always emerges, perhaps scarred from her battles, but stronger and more mature than she was before. Sometimes it is a bear market for the church, but when the church's stock falls, that is the best time to buy because the church will always bounce back. In the long run, we should all be bullish about the church. The gates of hell will not prevail. You know, people love to predict the church's demise and doom. The philosopher Voltaire in 1776, living in Geneva, said, 100 years from today, there will not be a Bible on earth except one that is looked at as an antique by a curious person. He said, we are living in the twilight of Christianity. This was Voltaire's prediction in 1776. He said, Bibles are going to be relegated to museums. There'll be antique pieces that maybe curious historians go and take a look at every now and then. But nobody's going to believe the Bible. The Christian faith is dying out. Well, God's got a sense of humor because in a twist of irony, the very house in which Voltaire lived when he wrote those words was later used by the Evangelical Society of Geneva as a storehouse for all their Bibles and all their gospel tracts that they gave away to people. So take that, Voltaire. In 1822, Thomas Jefferson said, there is no living man who will die a Christian. What a prediction. No living man will die a Christian. He believed that every man living in 1822 would be converted to some form of deism or Unitarianism before he died. Again, in his view, the Christian faith was waning. But the very fact that we are gathered here today to proclaim the Scriptures, to hear the Scriptures proclaimed, to confess our faith in the triune God of the Scriptures, shows that Jefferson and Voltaire were false prophets. Uh, The reality is millions upon millions of Christians are gathered to worship the triune God today. Sure, the church may be struggling. Uh, She she may uh, have all kinds of problems. We, We may see all kinds of weaknesses and flaws in the church in our day. But the reality is, the reality is the church is larger than ever. She is growing globally at a rapid pace. Her future is bright Her future is as bright as the promises of Jesus. 
When you look at the history of the church and how the church continues to grow and advance, there is no human explanation for this. There's no human way to explain this. It can only be because Jesus is building his church as he promised. The gates of hell cannot resist or stand in her way. The church is a divine institution, a divine building project. Only the presence of Christ with his church can explain her success and her staying power. In fact, G.K. Chesterton said, I love this too. He said, I believe in Christianity, and my impression is that a system must be divine which has survived so much insane mismanagement. <laughs> I mean, let's face it, a lot of times the church has had insane mismanagement, but the fact that the church has not just survived, but thrived for so long shows you God's up to something, and he's not going to let go of his church. He's going to accomplish his purposes through his people. In the screw tape letters, uh, C.S. Lewis's uh, obviously fictional account of letters from a senior demon to a junior demon, this is how screw tape, the demon, describes the church. This is the church from a demonic perspective, a satanic perspective. The church of Satan sees her. The demon screw tape says, the church is spread out through all time and space and rooted in eternity and terrible as an army with banners. Satan is more fearful of the church than Christians are confident in the church very often. Uh, Satan has a higher ecclesiology than many American Christians do. The reality is the church will be the winningest institution in all of history. Jesus is determined to win the victory, and he's determined to win the victory through us. To implement the victory he's already accomplished through us, through his People, weak though we may be, this is how Jesus is going to win the victory. Just look at Peter as an example of this. If you want to see how God uses flawed and weak people to accomplish his purposes, think about Peter. Peter makes this grand confession in Matthew chapter 16 about who Jesus is. And then a few verses later, Jesus has to say to him, get behind me, Satan, because he's become a stumbling block to Jesus. He tempts Jesus to seek the kingdom without the cross, just like Satan tempted Jesus back in Matthew chapter 4. Even after Pentecost in Galatians chapter 2, Peter has to be corrected by Paul because he has garbled the gospel message by pulling back from fellowship with Gentile believers. Paul has to oppose him because he's denied the gospel. So Paul says to Peter, I had to oppose Peter to his face. But despite these weaknesses, despite these mess-ups, despite these failures, Peter was greatly used. He became one of the rocks upon which the church is built. Peter was imperfect, and yet Peter was used in great ways. And that should be an encouragement to all of us. He can continue to build his church through us despite our weaknesses and imperfections, our sins and flaws. The victory of the church is sure. And again, the victory of the church happens in history and across history. This is not a last-second escape. No, the victory of the church means there will be a long, slow march of the gospel through all the world's institutions. The confession, Christ is Lord, will make a long, slow march through all the institutions of the world until every last one has been subdued to Christ. It's interesting to me that Jesus mentions Hades here. Hades was the Greek name for the realm of the dead. The Hebrews would have called it Sheol. Uh, in Isaiah 38, when Hezekiah is sick, he says he is at the very gates of Sheol. Uh, a Greek speaker would have said the very gates of Hades. 
But in that account, in Isaiah 38, the Lord delivers King Hezekiah from the gates of Sheol and restores his health. When Jesus speaks of the gates of hell not prevailing against his church, he's really talking about death. At least this is part of it. He's saying death cannot defeat the church. Satan might have the power of death that he wields over people to manipulate people and whatnot, but death cannot defeat the church. The church will defeat death because Christ has defeated death. Death cannot defeat the church. The church has Christ's resurrection life and therefore has the power to overcome death. And so, you know, when non-Christians persecute the church and when they put Christians to death, what are they doing? Martyrdom does not mean the defeat of the church. Martyrdom is one more way the church advances. Martyrdom does not signal the church's defeat at the hands of Hades. Martyrdom is one more way the church overcomes Hades. Because Hades and death do not have the last word. Or here's another way to think about it. Jesus' kingdom is the realm of his rule. Wherever his rule is acknowledged, trusted, and obeyed, there is the kingdom of Jesus Well, here, Hades is not just the realm of the dead, it's the realm of Satan. It's the kingdom of Satan, the kingdom of darkness. And outside of Christ, everyone belongs to Hades. Hades is the realm where Satan rules, and everybody who doesn't belong to Jesus belongs to Satan. They may not know that or acknowledge that. They may not be Satan worshipers openly. They may be nice, respectable people, but they're on Satan's side in this battle. They belong to him. Hades is Satan's house. It's Satan's kingdom. But remember that parable about Satan's house that Jesus told in Mark chapter 3? You know, they had accused Jesus of using demonic power to cast out demons. And Jesus responds by pointing out how that is absurd. A house divided against itself cannot stand. And then he says, no one enters a strong man's house to plunder it unless he first binds the strong man. So if I am casting out demons, that shows I have bound Satan and now I am plundering his house. And this is exactly what Jesus is doing through the course of history. He has bound Satan and he is now plundering Hades. He's setting people free from death and from hell. We ourselves, we who are here today to worship Jesus, we are plunder rescued from Satan's house, from the burning fires of Hades. We have been brought from Hades into Jesus' kingdom, from death to light, to life, from darkness to light. Jesus has done this for us. And now through us, Jesus continues his work of plundering Hades as we play our part in rescuing sinners from death and hell. It's like running in to rescue people out of a burning house. That's what we're doing when we evangelize and carry forward the mission of the church. As we proclaim the gospel, as we announce the good news, as we live as bearers of Jesus' truth and love, we are carrying out Jesus' paddle plan for the church. Hades is a house built on sand, it will fall. The church is a house built on the rock, the rock of Jesus as the chief cornerstone and chips off the old block like Peter. Now go back to where we started. This takes place in the region of Caesarea Philippi. I think Jesus took his disciples out to the most pagan place in Israel to make this declaration. He took them out to a demon-haunted, idolatry-infested city, the city of Caesarea Philippi, to the very place known as the gate of hell, so they could see what he was calling them to do, the kind of mission they would have. The church is called to set up shop and carry out God's mission right at the very gates 
of hell. We don't retreat, we charge. We don't run away from places where we see those hellfires burning in our culture. No, we run to them to rescue people. We run straight into the battle to rescue sinners from the burning house of Hades. We're not called just to hold down the the fort, to circle the wagons and play defense. No, we are called to storm the gates of hell. The church is a great battering ram that will beat down the gates of Hades. It may seem like we are outnumbered and outmaneuvered today, like the forces of hell have us surrounded. But if so, I love the words of that great old Marine, Chesty Puller. Uh, The words that Chesty Puller said to his men in a particular dicey moment where the enemy had surrounded them and seemed to have them trapped. He said to his men, the enemy has us surrounded, which means we have them right where we want them. When we shoot, we can't miss. And that is exactly right. Christ has put his church at the gates of hell, so we cannot miss the target. The advance of Christ's church is irresistible. Christ's church is indestructible. Love what Theodore Beza said. This was Calvin's right-hand man. Uh, Of course, he saw the church attacked again and again by the powers that be. But Beza said the church is an anvil that has worn out many a hammer. The church will get pounded, and the church will still persist. Let me give you one last example of this ripped from the headlines from just a few months back. Uh, You all know how the Supreme Court uh, handed down the Dobbs decision back in June, which overturned the 1973 Roe decision, uh, ending a federal right to abortion, throwing this back to the states. And, of course, that was worthy of great celebration uh, for God's people. It represented an answer to prayer. It represented a victory. Uh, should be seen as a great triumph for the church in our land, even though obviously the fight over abortion is not over. Uh, but this is what I found really interesting. There are those, of course, who continue to want to defend abortion in our land. I would say what they're really defending is Molech worship. Molech was the false god, the demonic god that people worshiped by sacrificing their children. They would sacrifice their children to Molech. Uh, so we can describe abortion in those terms. It's false worship of Molech. But it's really interesting to me how the people in our culture who have vowed to fight back and to defend this Molech worship, defend the right of mothers to kill their own babies, how they described it. Listen to a few examples of this. This is from uh, Gavin Newsom, governor of California. This, This is what he said right after the decision came out. Our daughters, sisters, mothers, and grandmothers will not be silenced. The world is about to hear their fury. California will not sit back. We are going to fight like hell. This is what Senator Elizabeth Warren said uh, after the Dobbs decision. I'm madder than hell, and I'm determined to fight like hell. And then Governor Gretchen Whitmer uh, from Michigan. Women are waking up this morning feeling hopeless, but we can't go back. I'm more motivated than ever to keep fighting like hell to ensure abortion remains safe and accessible in Michigan. Do you notice the word they kept using there? Newsom and Warren and Whitmer, they kept using the word hell. They kept invoking hell when they committed to fight for abortion. It's almost like subconsciously they know whose side they're on. They're on the side of Hades in this battle. But the gates of Hades will not prevail. Molech worship will not prevail over the worship of the triune God. Jesus will defeat Satan and all the other false gods that hold people in bondage. 
Jesus reigns right this moment as King of kings and Lord of lords. Right this very moment, he is building his church, and Satan can do nothing to stop it. Jesus will claim the nations. The church he is building will disciple the nations. Every neighborhood, every town, every city, every state, every nation, every empire, our whole planet is destined to be Christianized. That's the way the story goes. That's where it's headed. That's the confidence we need. And so this passage in Matthew 16, it gives us hope even as it challenges us. It shows us Christ uses weak, fallible believers like Peter, like us, to overthrow Satan's kingdom of darkness and to extend his church. Do not buy into the doom and gloom view that, church, that the church will be the loser in history. No, the church will win because Jesus 